There are many promises in the Bible that encourage us to trust God in all the difficulties and complexities of life. Look at Psalm 62 and verse 8. So trust him absolutely, people. Lay your lives on the line for him. God is a safe place. So we can approach life with confidence and zest, and we can even look forward to the challenges that are a part of living in this world. Such was the case with David. As he entered the field of battle with Goliath, he had no doubts in his mind about God or his own strategy. He defeated the giant and won a great victory. It was the turning point of his life. From that day on, David was the toast of Israel. And everything he did, as we've read, was successful. And everyone, including Saul, admired him and loved him. Also, God had given to David a special friend called Jonathan. But then it all went south. And David entered a period of his life that would last more than a decade where he would be a fugitive, relentlessly pursued, and at times he would only be a hair's breadth from death itself. He had to cope with the reality that he had done nothing wrong. His love for God was undiminished. His motives in serving Saul completely pure and his conduct among God's people exemplary. And yet he became a fugitive to be hunted down and killed like a stray dog. I doubt there are any of us who have not found ourselves in a similar situation where we have done nothing wrong and we've made it our business to do the right thing and to walk with God and to honour him in the daily affairs of our life. But somehow, the whole world has turned against us. And it's totally unfair. I mean, we don't mind if we cop something for what we've done. But when we're innocent, and yet we are still persecuted, it's hard to handle. And our confidence in God takes a direct hit. The spiritual lesson that God is wanting to teach David through these years is to learn to rely on him, to lean on him, no matter what. What David went through was all a part of his training to be a king. To be a king who would resemble the great King Jesus who would ultimately come, ultimately come from his loins. You see, the truth is, friends, that whether we like it or not, it is God's plan for us to grow in grace 
and not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in people, not to trust in this world, but rather to trust in him alone so that we might experience and know the joy and the excitement and the glory of loving and obeying him. You see, the truth is that when God took us into relationship with himself, he was deadly serious. He didn't want to be just an app in our lives, but rather he wanted us to become conformed to the image of his own dear son, Jesus. And he's so serious about us growing in grace because he paid the ultimate price for our salvation in giving his son to die on Calvary for our sins that we might have eternal life. So God is very serious that we should grow in grace. That's what he is about in our lives. And that's what David is about to learn. As long as we lean on someone else or some other thing, we will not know the help and the wonder of God's presence as he wants us to know. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not talking about some privatised Christianity where we don't need people. We do need people. But ultimately, it is only God who is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. So it's important that we learn this lesson and that we keep learning it that we are not to put our trust ultimately in anything in this world because it will only give us temporary relief. So let's see what happened to David. First of all, he lost his position. This happened because the women sang a song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And the green-eyed monster of jealousy and envy entered Saul big time, in spite of the fact that David, though the anointed king to be, David was Saul's most loyal servant. David had no agenda in Saul's court to undermine him. He did Saul's bidding and enjoyed even the respect of Saul's best commanders. We read this in 1 Samuel 18 and verse 5. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. But then something snapped in Saul. Devoid of God's spirit and favour, Saul's life began to unravel and fall apart. And he became concerned only about protecting his kingship and his dynasty. We read this in 1 Samuel 18 and 10 and verse 11. 
the next day an ugly mood was sent by God to afflict Saul who became quite beside himself, raving. David played his harp as he usually did at such times. Saul had a spear in his hand. Suddenly Saul threw the spear, thinking, I'll nail David to the wall. David ducked and the spear missed. This happened twice. You know, we read that and we think, well, that must have been bad. But think about it. It's actually like someone threatening you, threatening your life if you don't hand over your wallet. Or someone breaking into your house with a gun. It's that sort of thing. Saul hurled a spear at David that could have killed him. If our life is threatened on the street or in our home, we never forget it. In fact, some people are so traumatized by it that they never get over it. Then add to that the hurt David must have felt because he really loved Saul and he served Saul faithfully. And then without warning, there's this spear hurtling towards him by a man who he had come to love. And in that very moment, David realises Saul is a madman. David's life and his perception of people changed in a moment. Reality had taken hold. And yet, though aware of his new situation, David continually faithfully served the king. 1 Samuel 18, 15 to 16. As Saul saw David becoming more successful, he himself grew more fearful. He could see the handwriting on the wall. But everyone else in Israel and Judah loved David. They loved watching him in action. So that despite Saul's now obvious hatred of David, David's position is still secure. I mean, how can you expel someone who is successful? How can you expel someone who's obviously being blessed by God? David stayed in the army, continued to do his job with great talent, but with each success... Saul's jealousy and envy continues. Again, I want to emphasise, David has done nothing wrong. But Saul's conspiracy against David continues. One day Saul said to David, Here is Merib, my eldest daughter. I want to give her to you as your wife. Be brave and bold for my sake. Fight God's battles. But all the time Saul was thinking the Philistines, the Philistines will kill him for me. I won't have to lift a hand against him. But the plot didn't work. And Saul hears that his other daughter, Michal, loves David. 
So he promises her to him at a price. Again, Saul's thinking that David will be killed in battle and his problems will be over. No such luck. David brings the bride price and marries Michal. When Saul realised that God was with David and his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still even more afraid of him and remained his enemies for the rest of his days. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is working for Saul. He reminds me of Coyote in trying to kill the Roadrunner in that famous uh, cartoon series. Everything that Coyote tries blows up in his face. And then it got worse. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. Remember, David is an officer in Saul's army and the brightest young talent in Israel. But now David knows beyond a shadow of a doubt his position is precarious. It is now not only Saul who wants to kill him, but he's now given permission for his men to kill him as well. I mean, it's one thing for the boss to want to kill you, but it's another thing to give the whole office the opportunity to kill you. But David continues to do what is right and serves Saul faithfully. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the harp. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. David's life with Saul is finished. His security, his position, they're gone. And he's done nothing wrong. Secondly, David lost his wife. David escaped and ran home to his wife, Michal, and Saul knew it. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with the garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. David is on the run again. In the meantime, back at Saul's home, 
Men report to David uh, to Saul that David is sick. And uh, Saul says, I don't care. I want him down here. You bring him here. And of course, they bring the bed and they discover the deception. And then Saul says to Michal, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michal told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? The sad reality is that David and Michal never lived in harmony again after this day. David has lost his wife. This uh, pristine faith that developed out there on the pastures around Bethlehem is being tested by the realities of public life in Saul's court. A little while ago, David was the toast of the nation, a hero, best soldier and commander in the army, married to the king's daughter. But now he's a fugitive with only a few friends and they too will be taken from him. Thirdly, he lost his mentor. David is running through the hills trying to secure a place to hide and find someone to support him. As you would expect, he runs to Samuel, who had anointed him to be the king over Israel. David made good his escape and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him everything Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel withdrew to the privacy of Naoth. Naoth was a perfect place to hide. It was like a suburb of flats that were built on what to one another. And so it was, a, it was a perfect place to hide because you'd have to go through all these flats to try and find David and Samuel. But someone, because you see now the whole nation is being run by a madman who's relying on spies and informers, someone sent the message to Saul that David was with Samuel at Naoth. And so again, David is on the run for his life. And he loses Samuel, his mentor. And in fact, he will never be with Samuel again. You see, gradually, all of David's support is evaporating. And at the same time, his emotional stability and confidence are falling apart. He's lost his position. He's lost his wife. He's lost his mentor. And then fourthly, he lost his closest friend. He runs to Jonathan, his last hope. The one who David loved 
He pleads with Jonathan. Why is your father trying to kill me? What have I done wrong? What sin have I committed? Why is he doing this, Jonathan? Jonathan says, this cannot be, my friend. You are not going to die. My father does nothing great or small without telling me. So why would he hide something like this from me? And look at David's reply. I swear to you by the living Lord that I am only a step away from death. Can you feel the anguish and the bewilderment in David's voice? I've done nothing wrong, but I'm hated and I'm being hunted like a dog. The outcome was that Jonathan assured David of his love and loyalty and they arranged a signal so that if David's life was in jeopardy, he'd be able to flee and go in a different direction. And such was the case. It was obvious from the actions of Saul when David was absent from the court that Saul was still determined to kill him. And so that day, David lost his closest friend. And in those days, there was no texting, no TikTok, no Facebook, no Skype, nothing that would enable him to keep in touch with Jonathan. Their friendship was gone. It was but, and would be, but a beautiful memory. They would never ever meet again. David has lost position, his wife, his mentor, his closest friend. And then five, he even loses his self-respect. If all the losses he has sustained up until now are not enough, now David totally falls apart. I think the loss of Samuel and the loss of Jonathan completely knocked David for a six. And he realised for the first time in his life he was completely alone. There was no one he could rely on. And if he did contact someone, he would actually put their lives in danger as well. So what does he do? So David left, fleeing from Saul, and went to King Achish of Gath. What? Gath? The home of Goliath? The headquarters of the Philistine nation? They all knew who David was. How could they not know? He would be like Miranda Kerr in a convent. You couldn't miss him. The king official said to Achish, isn't this David, the king of his country, 
This is the man about whom the women sang as they danced. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. I cannot believe what David did next. Their words made a deep impression on David. And he became very much afraid of King Achish. So whenever David was around them, he pretended to be insane and acted like a madman. When they tried to restrain him, he would scribble on the city gates and let down spit drool, let spit drool down his beard. It makes me want to weep to see this good and godly young man. Where was all the spiritual fullness he had when he came to meet Goliath? Where was all the spiritual confidence he had when he went out to battle with Goliath? Where was the total trust in God as he slang that sling and that stone at Goliath? He has become a shadow of his former self, behaving like a madman with saliva dribbling down his beard, desperate to find a place where he could be safe. When he was actually presented to Akish, Akish, seeing him behave like a madman, he said to, the, he said to those people who presented him, haven't I got enough idiots in my uh, court without bringing another one? All the supports of David's life are gone. His position, his wife, his mentor, his closest friend, and now even his own self-respect. Everything that David ever believed about God and his faithfulness has taken a hit by a tsunami of loss. The position and all the people that gave him security and certainty in his life in this world have gone. And as he looks at his life, that bright future that had been prophesied over him, it all seems to be in ruins. You see, but David, like every true believer in Christ, though we are knocked down, we are never knocked out. Because David learnt that God is indeed alone, his refuge and his strength. In fact, after he escaped from these Philistines, he wrote this psalm. Be good to me, God. Oh, by the way, during this period, this period that we've been looking at, no psalms were written. There seems to be no contact with God. But now, he writes this psalm when he escaped from the Philistines. 
Be good to me, God, and now. I've run to you for dear life. <laughs> That's what you do when you lean on God. I'm hiding out under your wings until the hurricane blows over. I call out to high God, the God who holds me together. He sends orders from heaven and saves me. He humiliates those who kick me around. God delivers generous love. He makes good on his word. That's our man. That's him. He's not beaten. He's bounced back stronger, wiser, and more determined to claim his destiny. There are two lessons I think we need to learn from this when life is overwhelming. The first is this. We need the support of people, but it is only safe to lean on God. Only God, by his presence, can give us the peace, the wisdom, and the strength we need. David fell apart because he was trusting in himself. Second, it is a painful experience to lose the supports of life, but it is often necessary to discover what really matters in life. And I close with this poem called Hands Already Full. One by one, he took them from me. All the things I valued most, till I was left empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highways grieving. In my rags and poverty, until I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. Then I turned my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches, till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended, with my stupid mind and dull, that God cannot pour his riches into hands already full. I guess for us this morning, as we come to God, are our hands full or are they open for God to fill us with his blessing? Are they shut or are they open? That's the challenge. Let's pray.